Welcome to The Lens with me, Ollie Barrett. My guests today are Dame Inga Beale, Chief Executive of Lloyds of London, and Charlotte Evans, who's in the cyber underwriting team at Axis Capital. We're going to be talking about the rise of cybersecurity, especially with an industry that's been around for hundreds of years, We're talking about insurance. We'll be talking about whether there are some things that humans can and will always be able to do better than machines. And finally, speaking of humans, we'll be talking about this idea of bringing your whole self to work. Let's get to the conversation. My first guest, Dame Inga, welcome. Thank you. Hello, Ollie. Well, it's a pleasure to welcome you here. You're the CEO of Lloyd's of London. You're the first CEO at that company, which has been going, as you know, for over 300 years. And one of the challenges you face is to lead it into a digital age. And I want to talk all about that. Um, but first of all, I'd like to wind back the clock and ask you what your very first job was. Well, my very first job was actually working for my father. He was a lieutenant colonel in the combined cadet force at school and I used to make lanyards, twisting and, and weaving thread. Yes. I cannot remember how much I got paid, but I bet it wasn't a lot. It sounds a little bit like child labour. Is this really in your early years? Yes, this was when I was still at school, um, but I was so keen to start earning my own money. Um, and from there, I then took a job in a shoe shop, um, earning my way through until I left uh, home and went up to London at 18. And indeed, and you skipped the university thing, I do know that. I started at university and I actually lasted one term and I thought, I don't think this is for me. And that's why I left. So I didn't actually ever finish a university degree. Well, we have that in common. I shouldn't normally let this slip to Lens listeners, but yes, the one term uh, phenomenon. You then went into the fast lane, unlike my good self, because you entered the insurance industry and uh, in, in many ways you haven't looked back. Uh, Lloyd's is an insurance market, but in a nutshell, just tell us a little bit what that actually means to be an insurance market. Mm. We have got at least 60 different businesses operating in our market. Some of them are very big. In other words, they're part of a big insurance group. Some of them are small and they're just backed by individual names. So individuals who invest in underwriters and say, actually, we think you're going to be a good underwriter. We're going to make some money and we'll back you. So we are a very, very diverse market in terms of the types of people who support it in providing the capital. But what the specialism is, is all about writing really big, complex risks. And when we think about Lloyd's history, going back over 300 years, we've been always at the innovative end of providing insurance. It started with the, the ship merchants. They all used to gather in a coffee house yes. in London. And they didn't know whether it was going to be their cargo that got lost at sea, uh, maybe bad weather would come along, pirates, who knew? And they said, well, we'll support each other in a mutual way, we'll underwrite each other. And so literally that was the birth of the word underwriter as they decided to all support each other and say, well, actually, we'll all put money into a single pot. Whoever is the one who loses out, they'll get the money from the pot. And they used to write their name if they were going to support that under the name above, hence the term underwriter. Yeah, so that ride in that coffee shop takes us back to the roots uh, of the industry. Um, 
I wonder what it is today that really encapsulates it. Because when you say Lloyds of London, do you personally, Inga, do you think about a physical space? Is it conceptual? What, what is it? Well, it is a physical space still. And we have some physical spaces around the world. But it is basically a massive virtual market. The market writes about $40 billion of premium. Most of that is coming from the US. And this is what makes Lloyd's history so rich. Lloyd's made its name in the US in 1906. There was a massive earthquake, San Francisco earthquake. And Lloyd's had been providing insurance all the way from London. Uh, Brokers had been travelling out across the world and bringing business back to Lloyd's, the underwriters based in London. The earthquake happened. And they were covering earthquake. What happened, though, was that fire spread dramatically through the city and fire wasn't covered. So the Lloyds underwriter, Cuthbert Heath, his name was, he made a proclamation and he said, Lloyds will pay all claims. And they did. And that cemented Lloyds' relationship with the US. And then... Lloyd supported the US all through the Industrial Revolution. And and hugely more recently, if we think back, I suppose, to Hurricane Katrina, 9-11 and so on, that relationship has endured. It really has endured. And, of course, 2017, tragic events. But that's what we do. We're all about making sure that businesses, people, communities, countries get back on their feet when disaster strikes. Yeah, well, a hugely, hugely topical question. What is it for you, particularly about insurance that gets you out of bed in the morning? What is it? Where does that drive come from? Because you're hugely energised by it. And I, and, I, and I did. I started 36 years ago and I didn't really know much about insurance. But then I got my first job working in the London insurance market. And suddenly I was seeing business from Chile, from Mexico, from Australia, from Japan. I was looking at all these amazing risks and I realised what an amazing purpose we have. We're pouring money back into these places and we're helping people rebuild their lives. And that really got to me when I started and it stuck with me for 36 years, that sort of excitement about what we do. When I talk about your career, Daminga, I say you haven't looked back, but in fact that's not strictly true in the sense that um, you did take a year out, didn't you? So tell us a bit about that. What triggered it? Yes, well, as a young female, I was surrounded by men when I started work. And I didn't really see many female role models. And I, I, I became a bit like a man. I used to have male behaviours because I wanted to so belong. I wanted to be included. I, I wanted to be in the gang. So I, I became one of the lads. And after a few years, and I'd been working for about eight years, an incident happened that I oh, I'd sort of had enough. It was almost the straw that broke the camel's back in that after a series of cocktail parties, there were all these posters still up in the, in the office and I did ask for them to be removed some weeks later. And my manager said yes and I came back into the office the, the next working day, saw all these posters and they were posters of scantily clad women. Mm. Um, I saw my desk and my chair had been wrapped up like a big, like a big package in them and I, I walked out and went home and decided to go travelling because I didn't think I could work in the insurance sector anymore just because of that incident. And looking back, I see, gosh, I was impetuous, wasn't I? But it served a huge purpose for me. I went travelling. I saw many, many different cultures around the world. I was inspired by people, inspired enough to come back and rejoin the insurance market. Well, something must have changed over that year. So was it a reframe? Was it a difference of perspective, a belief that other organisations might not be quite so boorish and chauvinist? Well, what changed? There was one woman... 
because I hadn't planned this trip, when I did eventually end up in Sydney, I needed some money. So I got a job as the receptionist in the BBC's office. And interestingly there, for me at that time, the, the boss was a woman. She wore trousers to the office. And in those, when I'd left London, the Lloyds of London in the underwriting room, it's like a big trading floor, as a female, you had to wear a skirt to go in there. So here I had my eyes opened and I thought, gosh, and she's the boss and nobody cares that, that she wears trousers and they don't even refer to her as the woman. She's the boss. So she inspired me and I thought, if she can do it, I think I can be myself. I can go back. And I learned to be much more authentic. And as soon as I could be authentic and be in my own skin, I felt much more comfortable at work. And on that theme of being comfortable at work, being comfortable in your own skin, um, it has been widely reported you chose to come out about your sexuality and uh, that you're bisexual. And you chose to do that in a job interview about 10 years ago, I think, with Zurich Insurance. And since then, this is something which you have um, shown yourself to be a great uh, believer in as a subject. Why um, did you make that decision? What was in your mind at that time? And particularly on this subject, we've been hearing recently about productivity being 30% lower amongst people who um, who hide, if you can put it that way, their true identities at work. So I'd love to explore why you think that is and why this matters to you so much. Mm. Yes. And in fact, at that time when I came out, some relationships I'd had with men, some with women, at that time, I regarded myself as a lesbian. I'd been in a long-term relationship and I'd moved to many different countries and hidden my partner from my work completely and sort of we did everything in secret and then finally I went for this new job and I said enough is enough. Our relationship has suffered and in those days early on we didn't have mobile phones and so we relied on phone contact via the, the switchboard, the receptionist and I didn't allow her to phone me in the office in case the um, receptionist and someone got suspicious. And that was how bad it was. And I looked back and I thought, this is dreadful. Inga, what have you done living this double life and this secret life? And it's not fair on your partner and it's not fair on you. And that's why when I went for this new job, I said, is en enough is enough. And I decided to come out. And at that time, this is 10 years ago, um, did that seem to you to be any form of risk or how did you see that? I was nervous and I still am almost every day, even today. Today, even now, it takes me courage most days to even talk openly about it. But I think I have to do it. Um, I have to do it for others to try and give them the confidence to come out earlier because people do still think it's risky. And, of course, when you're running a very global business, you've got all sorts of other issues to be concerned about, about um, some countries in the world where it might be illegal still to be homosexual. There are many things that run through your mind. And so even today I'm nervous that I feel I'm taking a bit of a risk, but I do it to basically give other people the comfort that you can do it and you can be successful. And when you've taken that weight off your shoulder at work, you feel so much better yeah. and you don't have to worry about it anymore. And it's a wonderful feeling. Yeah, and, and, and this conversation will strike certain listeners as being quite peculiar in the sense, depending on where they're working, depending on where they're living. Um, one um, statistic I found quite shocking was this thought that over 60%, it is said, of people working in the city um, go back into, quote-unquote, the closet when they start city jobs. I mean, just give us a sense of why this is happening and what is 
inhibiting them, I suppose, around them. These presumably are not yet inclusive environments. Mm. It's a two-way thing, really. So it's the people who go back in the closet. They have a, you know, I would like them to, to feel they have the confidence to come out, but I would also ask the other people to be more accepting. So I think the only way we can try and tackle this is to start having conversation and dialogue about it, because a lot of it is fear. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, Daminga, I hope you won't mind me observing that on this and on several other subjects, you're not afraid to share your opinion. You're not afraid to share your view. And so I, I hope you don't mind me asking. Um, do you think that's part of your character or is that a decision that you have actively made to, to speak out, whether it's when you see an injustice, whether it's when you have a particularly strong-held belief about something? It's developed over time. When I was young, I had no confidence at all. I was very unconfident. I wouldn't speak out. In fact, I used to have to set myself a task because I got feedback early on that I didn't speak up enough in meetings. So I would go into a meeting and I would say, Inga, your goal is to say one thing or to challenge one thing. And then I would try and increase that. And I had to teach myself to speak out. So it is not something that I grew up with. It didn't come naturally. I I never thought of myself as a leader. Remember, I didn't manage one single person for the first 14 years of my career. I've grown in confidence, and now I feel almost duty-bound to make a difference for the people coming behind. Yes, well... Dame Ingabil, uh, please don't go anywhere. Uh, thank you very much for joining us today on The Lens. And we'll be back uh, momentarily with some more questions. Uh, my second guest today is on the cyber underwriting team at Axis Capital. Uh, welcome to The Lens, Charlotte Evans. Hi, thank you for having me. Now, Charlotte, let me take you back. Uh, tell us what was your first ever job? So my first ever job was actually working as a cleaner in a hospital. And actually, when I look back, I think I had no idea really how to get a job. So I just joined a temping agency and took the very first thing that was offered to me. But I just finished school and I was saving up to go off travelling. So I um, couldn't really afford to be too picky. And then presumably this was before you went off to do your studying at university? Uh, Yes. Then I went to study politics at university. So you went off to Durham University to study politics. And what was it there that made you want to check out the world of insurance? Well, I didn't grow up with some lifelong ambition to join the insurance market, like most people in insurance. I more or less stumbled across the insurance market because I was looking at jobs where I'd be able to use my degree. And I was studying politics and someone recommended, why don't I look into political risk insurance? And um, I was doing an internship at Liberty Syndicate in 2011 when the whole Arab Spring uprisings were going on. And um, I was really interested to see how the insurance market responds and the whole purpose of the insurance market in situations like that. So let's talk about today, because I guess the risk landscape, if we can call it that, uh, in business has changed a lot. So why is cyber uh, a greater risk today than it has been over previous years? Well, where the risk landscape is really changing is that the attack surface has grown so much. You've got so many devices now that are connected to the internet. Now, hang on. The attack surface, what does that mean? That sounds terrifying. Well, you've got the Internet of Things now, you've got new technologies like blockchain and cryptocurrencies and cloud service providers. So there's so much more data now. Apparently, 90% of the data in the world has been created in just the last two years. And by 2020, they're expecting that to be about 30 times the amount that there is today. So there's just no conceivable way of protecting an attack surface that is growing this fast. So I guess it's almost like sort of a draft coming into your house. In the old days, you would be attacked through your PC. And now it could be, I'm using the cliche, through your fridge. 
Uh, absolutely. And the problem is now is that hacking tools are so widely available on the internet. So now anyone can actually launch these kind of attacks. I was reading the other day about a florist um, who had a denial of service attack against her website on Valentine's Day. So no one was able to buy flowers on probably one of the busiest days for her in the year. And it turned out just to be one of her competitors who... Really? Yeah, just down the down the road from this particular florist who'd probably bought some kind of exploit kit on the internet and was able to attack. <laughs> who knew there was such nefarious activity going on in the world of floristry? Another reason why STEM subjects are so important. My next question is how prepared are businesses for cyber risk and I do wonder to myself if some of us are doing stuff which is quite frankly irresponsible and we're just setting ourselves up for for a disaster. Well we find it does tend to vary between companies because large businesses are generally well prepared because they've got the resources and money and there's a huge skill shortage in the cyber security market Um, so it's more the larger companies that are able to attract this kind of talent They'll have huge security operation centres, which will be staffed 24-7. They'll be monitoring everything going on within the organisation. And some of the larger companies will be recording billions of alerts every single day on suspicious activities and any unusual behaviour. It is a bit concerning, though, because I guess 99% or more of companies are not large. So is your theory, is your is your point that small companies tend to be less well prepared? Yeah, so smaller companies are much less prepared. This is probably because they just don't have the resources or they just don't really understand the risks. Mm. So, so sorry, just interrupt you, but are there specific things that you see companies just not doing that they could have they could have prevented. Yeah, well, for example, about 40% of SMEs supposedly don't even back up their data, which means that if their critical data is lost, deleted or encrypted by some ransomware, they'll have absolutely no way of recovering it, which means that just smaller businesses just don't have the robustness to defend themselves against some of these attacks. Mm, OK, so how can businesses be more resilient when it comes to cybersecurity? I think it's all about changing the mindset of these businesses because cyber resilience is not just about waiting for an attack to happen and then being able to prevent it. It's about being able to withstand constant change and being under constant attack. Technology is advancing at such a rapid pace and there's always new vulnerabilities that people are looking to exploit. Even the FBI was hacked into by a 16-year-old boy who was able to get into a database where He was able to uncover all the names of undercover policemen across America and leak that information. So they must have been one of the most secure organisations in the world. So businesses need to just accept the fact that the attacks will inevitably succeed. Companies need to get outside assessments to test the maturity of their systems and have regular audits, carry out tabletop exercises where they'll run through scenarios to test response plans. So what kind of cyber risks do people need to talk about within their organisations? So most breaches can be traced back in some form to human error. So education is so key in organisations, teaching people about basic cyber hygiene, um, because it's just not second nature to everyone. You need to tell people what to look out for, things like social engineering, phishing attacks, why people need to change their passwords. Hang on, what's social engineering? So social engineering is a confidence trick, which is not new in any way, because it's just getting people to do things by pretending you're someone you're not, like transferring money to a bank account um, that they shouldn't and making them bypass the standard procedures that they should be following. 
Well, this is a huge topic and it's on the conversation list of almost every business I know at the moment, large and small, which I guess we have to say is a good thing, isn't it? I have to say it's one of the biggest things I've learned in preparing for this episode. I must confess, I saw insurance as something you had to take out and uh, there would be an interaction of sorts when something went wrong. And I think what you've been teaching me is that there's so much you can help companies do to protect themselves, to help them mitigate against risk in the first place, but also when something does go wrong, to help them pick up the pieces afterwards. And I think that has helped me enormously. You're listening to The Lens. It will really help our listeners to find us if you can rate us on SoundCloud or in the Apple Podcast app. And if you're on Twitter, please do use the hashtag TheLensRB. So, uh, Dominga, Charlotte, let's have a, a wider conversation about this uh, topic. Um, insurance is clearly an industry that's evolving incredibly rapidly. And one thing that fascinates me is the role that us humans play in all of this, because uh, in a world of machine learning, artificial intelligence, even today, so forget projecting forward many years, but even today, um, what do you think you see humans doing best in the middle? Because Going back to that coffee shop, Inga, there's something about the insurance industry, I think, that is still very much face-to-face. So what's that and why is it still face-to-face? There's a lot of trust needed in insurance. As the insurer, you're promising to pay something in the future. So for any customer then to pay for a product, they're going to want that security. You know, They want that nice feeling of assurance that you're going to be there. And for Lloyd's in particular, because we do the big risks, big complex risks, lots of money involved, they need a lot of trust. And when I started over 30 years ago as an underwriter, um, just like Charlotte actually, not doing cyber because we didn't know about cyber then, but when I started as an underwriter, I was doing various things that today are done by computers. Even if I look at the underwriter's job in the last 30 years, it's changed dramatically. But one thing for sure is whatever you learn about um, the age of the computer and how clever machines are going to be and there's machine learning and there's artificial intelligence. I understand from the best authority, which is a couple of Italians who who run a firm which is all about artificial intelligence, the machines cannot do abstract thought. And that means the human is going to be safe in terms of being confronted with absolutely new situations and making an assessment and determining whether in insurance terms, what the risk is and what the likely um, scenarios could be. That gave me a lot of reassurance, Mm. huge amount of reassurance. The computers and the machines learn from patterns. They don't have abstract thought. And at the moment, nobody can... Whatever you read about how much it's it's, um, moving forward... The machines can't do abstract thought right now, so humans have a role. Okay, well, all I think you're saying there is that um, there is something that humans can do in terms of projecting, but aren't some of our um, uh, technologically uh, savvy listeners going to be saying, well, that is what computers do. Computers make predictions and projections all the time. What's the distinction? So the computers, and I'm not a computer expert, but the computers look at all the data from the past and they look at patterns and then they can extrapolate things. If you bring in something new that the computer has never looked at, it cannot do anything with that. And the human can come in and say, we think it could be this. And at the moment, the machines aren't able to have that thought process, that abstract thought process. Yes, I see. So, Charlotte, where is your... Uh, head on this, a sense of where humans play a role at the moment? Well, I 
think that's one of the unique things about the Lloyd's insurance market. We don't deal with large numbers of similar risks. It's more the unique, complex risks with large companies that have operations all over the world and work in multiple jurisdictions. And especially for cyber, there's numerous privacy laws and data breach regulations. These clients need human interaction to find the best solutions for them. Computers are more logical and deal with ones and zeros. And like Inga says, you can't apply context. And therefore, even though artificial intelligence and machine learning are developing rapidly, they'll still always need the human input and validation. Yeah, well, it's, it's, a, it's a fascinating and, and, and debatable, as we see, uh, subject. So, Charlotte, I get the impression that the role you perform today probably didn't even exist, you know, 15 years ago. So can you give us any sense of just how this as an area, as an industry, if I can call it that, is evolving? Help, help us get a handle on it. Yeah, well, the cyber insurance market is still relatively new, but it is one of the fastest growing areas of insurance. Just last year, there was around $3 trillion in cyber-related losses. One of the big changes that we're seeing is that companies have more value these days in their intangible assets. So it's things like their data, their intellectual property, their brand and reputation. And it's these areas that are grossly underinsured. Companies seem to be still more concerned with insuring their physical assets. So one of the cases I always think about is with Saudi Aramco, which is one of the world's largest oil companies. And they were hacked back in 2012. And within a matter of hours, this virus had spread through their systems and wiped over 35,000 computers. So they were immediately brought to a standstill, forced to use typewriters and fax machines. And it just goes to show there was no physical damage, but they were still brought to a complete standstill. So I wonder, um, when we're talking about cyber, a listener might think, well, actually... I am being protected by these forces around me, my company, by the government and so on. Um, are they right? And are there things on an individual level we can do to minimise our own risk? Inga? Absolute diligence on everything. I, I mean, even just today, I received an email that looked so valid. It just made me think because it asked me to click on something. So I immediately sent it off to the IT security team and they said, uh-uh, that's sending you off to a dodgy link. Don't, whatever you do, click on it. Yes, yeah, so it was a, so a so-called phishing yes. attack. Yes, we can all do something to, to protect ourselves. But from a business point of view as well, a lot of the incidents are actually those accidental clicks by employees. Mm. Just a pure mistake. All we need to do is actually give some training, give people the knowledge, do some testing, get them really aware about what they should look out for. Yeah, it does make me wonder, Charlotte, whether you see certain claims that you think, well, look, this could have been avoided. In terms of becoming better prepared, um, what can companies like yours, like insurance companies, do to help businesses prepare for cyber risks? So what are some of the things you're doing? Well, we want to move away from just being purely reactive and simply paying claims um, to being more proactive and working with our customers to really understand the risks that they're facing. And to do this, we, we put a lot of focus on academic partnerships and sponsor research projects. And we work with Oxford University and we've published some joint papers with them on quantifying cyber risk. And we also run courses on understanding cyber security, which we offer to our brokers, but we're looking to roll this out to clients as well. Mm, interesting. So I guess that fits back into this theme of 
education in the first place yeah, across an organisation. OK, so let's get practical. Someone's listening to this thinking, yeah, OK, we need to get the team clued up about this. Have you got a practical example of where that's worked, how that can work? Well, fishing is a good example because... Now, this is fishing, PH. Yeah. Tell me about fishing. Well, fishing will always be a problem. People just cannot help but click on those fishing links. But there is growing awareness around this and it's making a huge impact because a lot of companies that we see are sending out fake phishing emails to all of their employees to then be able to record the click rate. And then for anyone who's a multiple serial clicker, um, they'll give them additional training. And some companies are even going as far as deducting money from people's bonuses if they um, click on more than two or three links. Really? Gosh, you've seen that. So they're, um, they're actively testing their own employees. I think sometimes if that's from an outsider with permission, we talk about that as ethical hacking, don't we, Inga, in terms of, um, you know, testing the testing the barriers, I suppose. That's right. And we do need to do that. And you do need to do it constantly because if there's one thing we can be certain of, there's going to be people ahead of us. So it's a constant battle. Now, according to our cybersecurity expert for the Lloyds entity, 98% of the emails don't even get through. We're already throwing away 98% of email traffic. And even then, we still, in that 2% that, that we allow through our firewall, you'll still have some suspect emails getting wow. through. Those are shocking numbers, aren't they, in terms of the scale of the issue afoot. Um, Dominga, do you have a question or two for Charlotte, someone coming up through the organisation, mm. uh, someone perhaps in your shoes a few years ago? Yeah, we've got a massive modernisation effort going on in the Lloyds market where we're using technology for some people pretty much for the first time. They might have emails, but a lot of our processes are paper-based. Does that scare you as you're sort of thinking about this is going to be my future career and the whole thing's going to change? Is it exciting or does it scare you? I think for my generation coming into the insurance market, We've grown up in the digital age and we've been so used to, well, we've embraced technology in every part of our lives. So we fully understand the efficiencies that you can gain from employing technology in the workplace. Inga, when we look back over some of the uh, discussions at the World Economic Forum, we've heard for the last few years that the greatest risk uh, facing uh, humans is indeed our own planet's survival and climate change. And it just seemed to me uh, this year um, that that message was changing clearly climate change still a huge issue on the top tables around the world and yet cyber attack much much more in discussion was, was that your sense of it and if so what's your take on this and how it's changing yeah climate change is still obviously a big risk and something that the insurance sector we have to be very very aware of because it's impacting the frequency and severity of losses that we're having from weather events but it was so interesting at the world economic forum that technology and cyber security was so high on everyone's agenda. In fact, so high that when we gathered as a, as a bunch of people from the financial services sector, we said, do you know, I think it's probably the biggest risk that we face is the internet coming down or perhaps a cloud provider coming down. And we've done some analysis as Lloyd's at looking at the reliance we have on cloud providers. And there are three main cloud providers. And we did some analysis. If one of them was taken out for, say, three days, it would affect 12.4 million businesses in the US and could cost something like $19 billion just for that. And that goes to show the dependence we have and how everything is so interconnected. And that's just within the US, those numbers. And that's the most scary thing because most of the risks that we think about or have thought about in the past have had some physical boundary. 
the earthquake happens in a certain area. The windstorm, the flood happens in a certain physical area. Cyber attack knows no physical boundaries. And this takes us so far beyond some of the scenarios Charlotte was mentioning earlier with somebody having their data stolen. Just give us a sense, and I don't mean to be apocalyptic about this, but give us a sense of what some of those implications might be through one of those very large providers taking a hit. Well, what, what are we what are we imagining? What are we talking about? Well, it depends what their purpose is for why they're doing an attack. If it's um, a sort of state actor of some sort, they might be less interested in getting individuals' data, but they want to bring down a government or stop a country from working. So it really depends on the angle of the of the perpetrator of it. Some of them will be after their own financial gain, and therefore they'll be looking to get money out of bank accounts. And we've already seen some hacks like that, where they've been able to go in and they've been able to extract money, money from bank accounts in a very short space of time. Yeah, and that's what's so fascinating about the motives of some of the individuals involved. I mean, this conversation is making me think about the knock-on effects, whether it's to reputation, share price and so on. It's also making me reconsider who needs to be involved in these conversations. It sounds like this is a conversation for more than just the IT department. Is that fair to say? Yeah, absolutely. It should no longer just be relegated to the status of an IT issue just to be dealt with by the IT team. We saw last year that the CEO of Equifax resigned straight after they announced their breach. So I think it's now becoming more of a board-level issue. We're seeing more directors involved in this. They've got risk committees or chief information officers constantly reporting up to the boards to make them more aware of the issues and boards being more interested in discussing the financial impact of, of a cyber attack. Well, exactly on that subject, uh, I wonder, do you have a question uh, for Damien Gid today? Yes. What do you think that the greatest risk to Lloyd's is? Do you think it's a huge loss from underwriting affecting the Lloyd's fund? Or do you think it will come from inefficiencies in our processing, which could eventually mean that we become too expensive? They're probably more short-term versus long-term. So the immediate impact could be a massive event that affects the market because that's our business. We're in that business. But I think for 2017, uh, Lloyd's, we're going to pay out nearly $5 billion for the natural catastrophes that happen, but we're still in a very strong financial position. So overall, I'm not so concerned about that, but it is. it could happen tomorrow and it could happen any time this year or in the years to come. But the other piece you ask about is that sort of what will happen to our efficiency is a much more medium to long-term play. It's not going to be an instant event that happens this year or into next year. It's going to be other parts of the world introducing technology that means that we get left behind. And that's why, to me, that medium to long-term threat is if we don't adopt technology and modernise ourselves. Yeah, I agree. On that progression, uh, Damien, am I right in thinking you have had some reverse mentoring over the years. What was that? What does that mean? Well, that was me realising that actually I, I did, the idea came up from some younger people who suggested that I might want to try it and I did. And I have a reverse mentor there. Um, one of them has just started out, was an apprentice, so started at 19. Others might be a few years into their work. But I um, every six months I have a new reverse mentor and they tell me, they taught me about Snapchat, they told me about Instagram. I now try and madly do social media stuff. Um, but interestingly, what they did tell me is how they get their news. They get their news from 
their iPhone. They don't pick up a newspaper. Mm -hmm. They don't necessarily go to what I might regard as reputable sites for their news. And that is how we've got to learn to communicate. And the other thing that really, really surprised me was when one of my reverse mentors, when I said, how did you join Lloyds? And she said, oh, I saw this vacancy on some, some app on my mobile phone and I pinged over my CV and I got the job. And I said, you were on your mobile phone and you pinged over your CV? She said, yes. I mean, that just blew my mind away. That's not the gen- <laughs> you know, That's not how I grew up. And um, we've really got to learn from the next generation. That's why, for me, this is the most important thing I'm doing is hearing. And they're telling me what to do. I'm not telling them what to do. They're telling me what to do. Excellent. Well, if you don't mind me saying, this epitomises why we wanted to create the lens. So here we have someone leading from the front and not ever stopping learning. So Damien Gabil, thank you very much indeed. And to my other guest, Charlotte Evans, thank you both very much. Thank you. Thank you.